Those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we are, are just here to the end of chapter... We spent a while in chapter 6. You have here the Sermon on the Plain, similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but a different teaching occasion for Jesus. He teaches some of the same things, some of them with a little bit different twist. And so we've been kind of digging into that stuff. And this morning, we're looking at what it is to be a tree that bears good fruit, and having a solid foundation. You might think, well, I thought I was going to get an Easter sermon. Well, guess what? You're going to have a solid foundation. You're going to have an Easter sermon. So you don't worry about it. We'll get there. But Luke starts, or Jesus starts here with this point. I say starts. It's really his wrap-up. It's his conclusion in the section we're reading with uh, talking about fruit and trees. I don't know about you. I'm not much of a gardener, okay? So, and I'm not a farmer. I like I would like to have had my grand, I would love to have had my grandfather's green thumb. The guy could grow anything, okay, anything. And he used to have a garden that was a little bit bigger than this auditorium. Well, yeah, probably about twice the size of this auditorium. Back behind the church where he preached, they had well water, and the church said he could use it for baptisms and for the garden. And so he grew both. And, uh, he would he'd grow watermelon and corn, and this is an accurately out between Big Spring, Big Spring and La Mesa. Not too many people growing corn out there. But he would grow corn and cantaloupe and everything else in the world. Okra, beets. Everybody here likes pickled beets, right? Everybody. It's Easter, and your Aunt Myrtle is going to put out some beets next to the ham. Mine did. Beets were like the normal reddish-purple color. For some reason, so were some of her cucumber pickles, and I never figured that one out. So you could be tricked into getting the wrong thing. Sometimes, too, she would have things that were a green that is not found in nature. But Aunt Myrtle was a good cook. She just canned inventively. But you might have some of those things. My grandfather grew all that stuff. Sometimes my grandparents couldn't come to our house on holidays like this because, one, he was a preacher and it was Easter. And, two, my grandmother uh, was always pickling beets or grading papers because she was a teacher in West Texas, and you're doing one or the other in the 1970s, right? He just grew everything, and I, I loved that and loved helping him out. And so I would dig holes and wreck the tractor. That was my job, dig holes and wreck the tractor. And especially the second one, I did well. I've, I've told people here the story about me running into the church building because somebody moved it one afternoon. They moved the church building. They later moved a ditch as well, ran into that. Anyway, I would help him out. And, you know, bottom line is what you get in your trees and in your vegetables and in your fruits is never going to be any better than the soil, is it? So you got bad soil, you're not going to have a great garden. It's just not going to happen. The health of the roots, whether it's because of soil conditions or pests or whatever, is never going to be any better than the health of those roots. You're not going to get tomatoes better than the plant. It's just the way it is. The health of the entire thing matters. And so Jesus comes to us and he says basically that same thing. He's taught them how to live and how to be a disciple and how to have a holy God-honoring life. And he says, but listen, it's never going to be better than what's right in here rooted in your heart. It's always going to start there. And we kind of try to do it from the outside in. And the Pharisees tried that. How well that worked for them? If you're familiar at all with the Gospels, you know about the Pharisees, and they were a cranky bunch of people. Jesus had some really kind words to say about them one time. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're painted up nice, but you are dead inside. Okay, That's not the way you want to be. They treated the leaves 
but they didn't always treat the roots that would have produced healthier leaves. Our Wednesday night class was on a similar passage, the same thing, where Jesus curses the fig tree because it didn't have any figs. And we were talking about how, you know, we don't, how many of us have fig trees? We don't know. Some of you, some have a few. I think I heard that Earl has some fig trees. I remembered that. Isn't that right, Earl? Because I think they were going to sneak over and pick some, but you didn't hear that from me. Earl, you didn't hear that from me. But uh, we, uh, we don't always understand that. But the deal is that figs come out about the same time and in some varieties even a little bit before the leaves. And so those trees were saying, we're healthy, we're healthy, we're healthy. But the fruit wasn't even there. They were unhealthy trees proclaiming to be something else. And what Jesus says here is, listen, eventually somebody's going to come and pick your fruit. And you know what they're going to find out? They're going to know whether you are a sweet peach or a durian fruit. How many of you know durian fruit? I need a show of hands for this because I've got to explain it to you if it's not very... There are only a few of you. Durian fruit is this... I should have put a picture up there with smell-o-vision, except we had all been running out the building. It's this big, spiky-looking fruit, about like that. If you know what a jackfruit is, it's like a shrunken jackfruit. Jackfruits are huge. It's like this, and it has spikes because God was saying, no, don't eat this thing. Because when you open it up, it looks like it has inside like yellow banana pudding. Some of you would like that, right? If you could open up a fruit and have banana pudding, you'd be like, this is awesome. Don't fall for it. This is not banana pudding. This is teenage boy socks with garlic. Okay? I've never described it that way, but I think I just nailed it. That thing, that's what it is. It is teenage boy sweaty socks with garlic. And when you eat it, which I don't know why anyone does, but when you eat it, you will at first get a hint of banana. Then you find out, no, this is banana wrapped in teenage boy sock. This is not right. And then garlic comes through and then rotting, like rotting, gushy, brown, smushy, liquidified onion starts coming through. Doesn't that sound great? And then about the time you're about to vomit, you, you get the banana back and you go, oh, well, maybe that's not so bad. Wrong. Because what's behind that is his other sock. Okay? Nasty, nasty stuff. You're going to know, Jesus says, when it comes time when, for fruit to harvest and when, we, when at the resurrection God opens up His book of life and it just lays bare our hearts, we're going to know what kind of fruit we really are. Are we peaches? Are we apples? Are we grapes? Are we durian? Man, everybody's going to know if it's durian. Because I'm telling you, you open that thing up. It is illegal to open this fruit indoors in Thailand, Singapore, and a few other countries. Like throw you in jail. Singapore, they'd probably just beat you with a branch off a durian tree. But you just, you, you actually get punished for this because it's that bad. And you know it when you're, I've ridden tuk-tuks down the street in Nam Pen, Cambodia. And you'll be going along and you'll smell pineapple and you'll smell coconut and then poof, right there in the face, durian nasty, nasty stuff. There's a reason God made this with its own little warning label. Because I'm pretty sure if you put it on a stick, you can use it as a medieval armament, kind of a breaker sort of a thing. And if they had had, don't you know if they had had those back in, well, they had them. They just left them in Southeast Asia where they belong. But if the, if, if the British and the French could ever have had those things, some of those hundred-year wars would have ended in like three minutes Nope, they got out the durian. We're done and we surrender. It's over. 
What kind of fruit are you? And you can you can probably ask your kids. You can probably ask your spouse. And if they say durian, then you know later we'll have a song and you can come repent. It'll be fine. And you just you, you will know what kind of fruit you are. But this is what Jesus says. And what he's trying to get at is it's really obvious. We can proclaim a lot of things about what we are. But the bottom line is, if we really want to know what we are, we'll look at the fruit. What kind of things do people see in us? What do we produce? What, what are our, our relationships like? There's all kinds of fruit we can see that's rather obvious. And what are we? This is then what he says at the end of that. He says, a good man brings, out, brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. This is verse 45. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The old NIV, uh, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't hide it. Eventually, it just, your fruit shows what is in here. And the only way to fix the fruit, the only way to fix the words, the only way to be a more encouraging person, a kinder person, a more loving person, a more supportive person of your spouse or your, your kids, is to change what's in here first. Because you're only ever going to be able to bring out what's in there. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. Uh, there was a, while we were traveling this weekend, uh, I like to listen over on satellite radio, I like to listen to the, the, the family-friendly comedian station every now and then. And Brian Regan can be pretty funny. He was talking about politicians and candidates. We're not going to get into politics and candidates, by the way, no. But he, uh, he said... He, he loves how on billboards, he said he doesn't know all that much about politics, but he knows, you know, they put up on billboards and they just put this big picture of a person up on the billboard. And it says like Steve Wilson, leadership, integrity. He says it's so helpful, isn't it, that they had these qualities up on a billboard. That way, if you don't know who you're voting for, you see this billboard, you can look at it and you say leadership, integrity. He says that's really not helpful unless on the other side of the road, there's this other billboard. That makes your choice easier. And it says, you know, Norbert Floyd, liar, lazy. And then you go, okay, I know how to vote. Jesus is saying it's actually, it's almost that easy. Because we actually hear what comes out of our mouths. We hear who we are. And we can actually, we can know. Which is it? Which billboard would, would be ours? Leadership and loyalty or liar and lazy. Aren't you glad nobody are you are you as glad as I am nobody like Jesus puts a billboard up with your face and like your actual qualities? Would that be scary out by the side of the road? Just put it up there? It might not be. It might be good. He might he might put good things, but who knows? The only way you can know, get back to the foundation of things. So we go to this next set of verses. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Uh oh. Well, how would you answer that question? What if that stopped there? What if that's all Jesus has said? How come you don't do what I'm telling you to do, and yet you still call me Jesus and Lord? You say, I, I'm going to obey, and I'm going to follow, and I'm going to become like Jesus. And then he says, you're not doing anything I did. I didn't ever do I watched you yesterday. I didn't do any of that. You know, what if that's where he stopped? He goes on. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what it's like. Now, before we go on, he's going to go into what we base our Sunday school song on, right? The wise man builds his house upon the rock, all that kind of stuff. But we always think about, we even in the song, 
uh, with it being so I build my house on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is right. But we skipped. It's not in the song. The point of what Jesus was saying, which is what he began with. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I'm thinking if Jesus was this was Jesus's own Bible, he would have that underlined, bold, all caps and does them is like I'll show you what it is. He is like a man building house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house in the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. He says, it's one thing for you to listen. This is, how, this is his wrap-up to his sermon. It's one thing for you to have been out here on the plane listening to what I'm telling you, and I've talked to you about what God wants and how to live a life a disciple. But it's not just hearing the sermon. You've got to go, and I need you to do this stuff. Like, actually go out... Forgive people as I have forgiven you. Love people as I have loved you. Serve people as I serve you. I want you to go out and actually do this stuff. And then it will be like a house that is built on a solid foundation that withstands the storm. He says, if not, it's like a house where you left out half of the two befores and half of the, the ceiling joists and the floor joists. And you know what's going to happen to that, don't you? That's going to be... <coughs> pardon me. That's going to be one of those houses you see every now and then where the roof started out nice and straight, but now it looks like one of those Conestoga wagons that they cross the prairies in where it does this sort of a sag thing. Yesterday, I was actually in a room at the uh, Anatole. They probably won't like that. I said this. But I noticed that the, the ceiling, it was a suspended ceiling like this, and then it came to the edge of the room, and there was very big, big uh, crown molding around it. And the crown molding sagged. Like this, like like that, like a Conestoga wagon roof or or a Three Stooges horse, you know. Remember those horses? I always wonder where they got those. I always wanted one just for fun. Could you swing on that thing like a porch swing? That doesn't seem comfortable for the horse. Anyway, this thing was, was sagging and it was because the, the suspended ceiling had started itself to, to come down. Sometimes the wire stretches or comes loose and it, the weight of it was on the trim and the trim was never designed for that and it's really starting to sink down. Well, luckily, that's not really... Neither of those things is structural. But Jesus is saying, you've got some structural problems. You've probably been in some houses where the foundation wasn't very good. When it, where I grew up, uh, you get a lot of settling. Our house actually was built up on a hill, a, a hill in San Angelo. So in every other part of the world, it would be called a flat. But uh, it, it was pretty solid, and we didn't have all that many foundation issues. I moved to Bonham when we went there. New houses already had cracks in the paint and wallpaper before the realtor even got to show it the second or third time. Just the, the so much clay in the soil and, and, and because of their temperature and humidity and rain and stuff, just constantly swelling and contracting and swelling and contracting. And those houses just all the time. Abilene's a lot this way. Just houses with cracks and, and our porch would do this to our, in relation to our front door step all the time, all summer long. Jesus says, you know, that's, that's really not good. When your heart is built on things that are fickle, like emotions, built on things that are fickle, 
like what do people think now in our culture? That's going to change in three weeks anyway. Uh, you know, what, when those things are constantly moving up and down, you're, everything about the house has less structural integrity than if it's built on really good solid rock. We moved to New York and our house was built on, on a real hill, uh, about 160 feet up. And it was, but it was built on a hill that was actually all rock. That house was, when we left, it was 110 years old. Not one crack in the foundation. None of the, none of the stuff was sagging. None of it. 110 years old. And the difference, well, there's probably two differences. 110-year-old wood is also more solid. Go, go Google that one. And then just look at, at the ground it was built on. It wasn't shifting. It didn't change. Culture changes. Feelings change. Uh, situational ethics. That all just moves and flows. And it leaves you weaker when things get harder. It leaves you without the wisdom you need when you really get to tough, huge life decisions that require good, solid, truthful answers. And Jesus says, when you will build your life by the knowing and the doing of what I'm teaching you and showing you, it doesn't matter what comes. You'll have that solid foundation when you get there. And you're going to have stuff come. We all do. Life, death, sometimes the life is harder than the death, but it's coming. Barbara Walters, I'm going to go back to the tree for a second. Barbara Walters, famous as a I guess a journalist, I guess that's what you get, more celebrity interviews. She liked to interview prominent people back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Some of you would know her now from being a retired person from The View, but she had a better career before that. Uh, she liked to interview some famous people. She would ask really awkward questions sometimes. And some of them were, were silly questions that she would ask, but she would always ask it like she was being really pensive, you know. And one she's most famous for, morphed, comedians kind of morphed the question into, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? And people all went, what? You know, what kind of a tree would I be? And she asked it of Catherine Hepburn, who said that she would rather be an oak tree than an elm tree because you have elm rot and disease. She didn't know about about the oak disease we have around here. She'd have known that was that you're just jumping from the fryer frying pan into the sauteing pan. What are you doing? And so one's bad as the other. That's what she decided. She she didn't want to be a, a Dutch elm disease. That's what she was trying to avoid. So she would be an oak tree. Well, it seemed like a silly question at the time. I think a lot of people made fun of her for it and have made fun of it for, for her made fun of her for it for decades. But Jesus is kind of asking the same question when he asks us about the tree. What kind of a tree would you be? No, not exactly. What kind of fruit are you going to bear? And that all, again, deals with the roots. Where is your faith rooted? Where are your actions coming from? What are you actually building on, to go on to the next metaphor he uses, what are you building on that solidifies your life? And that's where we come into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul sought to answer that question for the Corinthians. If you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it won't be up there. He says this. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I might need glasses. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received 
and on which you have taken your stand. See, they received it and then they took their stand. It goes right back to what Jesus says. They heard him, but they also put it into practice. Not perfectly. You know that if you've read 1 Corinthians. They didn't put it into practice perfectly, but they're trying. He says, it's on which you've put, taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So if you're laying down a foundation built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, where do you start? What do you start with? What's your cornerstone? It's Jesus, right? He says, this is what I passed on to you that was the single most important first thing that you needed to know if you're going to live a life that glorifies God. If you want to be able to say to Jesus, but I did do what you did. I followed you. I was faithful to you. And I heard what you said. And I hope that it was pleasing to you. This is where you'd start. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me as one abnormally born. Go back through that list. He says, this is what's most important first, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. According to the Scriptures, God made a promise earlier that He would, and He did. Because when He says in this passage, according to the Scriptures, He's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It hadn't been written yet, most of it. And so He's talking back to the Old Testament. He said, just as, as God had predicted, He did this. He died for you, that you would be saved. If you're going to build your life in a way that honors God, it starts there. That you understand that Jesus really did die, really did forgive your sins, really did take every one of those sins to the cross with Him and put them to death according to what God had promised. That He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that as had been predicted. And he was, we'll come back to that. That he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and to the twelve. That it was witnessed. There were people who saw that he came out of that tomb. They saw him alive. They saw him talking. They saw him walking. They saw him going, going through walls and floating up to heaven. They saw this stuff. Eyewitnesses. Peter and all the rest of the twelve. And then he says he appeared to over 500 people. If twelve's not enough, and actually twelve's enough. 500 people, and Paul says those people still alive, some of them today, and some have fallen asleep. And then he says he appeared to James, to all the other apostles, because he wanted us to really understand that, because he'd really already said it. And he says, and then he even appeared to me as one abnormally born. He says, I didn't even deserve it. He appears to me later than everybody else. But he's saying, I have seen the risen Lord, period. And this is the most important thing for you as his disciples. That you know that He died for you, but He didn't stay there. He was raised on the third day. And it's witnessed to by hundreds of people. He says this because there were people who were starting to say, you know, there's not really a resurrection of the dead. We're just going to die and have been holy and it'll have been enough. It'll be good. Resurrection, not really so important. 
Is it really that important that I have to live again? He says this. He says, why in the world would some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And why would anyone dare to say that there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? So he goes back over that and says, do you not understand how many people I just said saw him? Did you not get that? You got the twelve, you got James, you got Simon, you've got me, he says at the end. He says, but you've got 500 people, 500 people that, that have seen him raised from the dead. He says, that's, a, that's an important issue because if it's true, if the mumblers are right and he's never been raised from the dead, why are we bothering why are we even doing what we're doing? Why are we here this morning? Why are we bother paying for lights and fans and air conditioning and everything else? Why are we here? If there is no resurrection of the dead, I always like what Norm said on Cheers back in the not was it nineties or eighties? I don't even know. It's a dog eat dog world, and we're all wearing milk bone underwear. It's good theology, isn't it? Because if the resurrection didn't happen, that's exactly where we are. It's a free-for-all, and it doesn't matter what fruit you bear. You can bear durian all day long. Be a stinker, because it just doesn't matter. But it matters. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because he is. 500 witnesses saw him that day. If you're one of the people who uses the Bible app, the Version Bible app, you can go in there and you can see our... Our outline for this morning's lesson. And at the bottom of that is a reading. Go check it out for yourself. Ravi Zachari- I put a link there for Ravi Zacharias's evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. You don't have to take, I wouldn't take my word for it. I wasn't there, but there were 500 witnesses who were. 500 witnesses, and when we get to this part of our series in Luke later on this year, Luke talked to many of those witnesses because that was his job was to go and to speak to people who had been there. And when he writes about the resurrection, he is giving you what some of the very same people Paul is talking about said to him about what happened during those days. And we're not reading fairy tale and legend. We're reading an historical account given to Luke by the witnesses, eyewitnesses, who were there. So go, I, I would challenge you to go back and to look at that. You say, well, is that really enough? I mean, only 500 witnesses, and it was a long time ago. Scripture itself says, God said to Israel, when they were having uh, to discern how to, you know, is a person innocent or guilty in court, He said, on the testimony of two to three eyewitnesses, every matter is established. If they're there and they saw it, it happened. Okay? You may have to work through the details with them, but eyewitnesses count, is what He said under the old law. Well, if two or three can establish a fact, what do 500 do? You realize that's more witnesses than most of the, the most significant events that we would consider in a history class that ever wrote anything down about what they're doing? We establish facts all the time on far, far less evidence. But I do. I challenge you to go and, and look at that, uh, and that link to Ravi Zacharias' information. One of the things I find exciting about it is this, and this is why I, I find Easter an, an important celebration. One of those promises, all, when Paul is talking about according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, is our own resurrection. The day when Christ returns and raises the dead over all the earth. It's a weird 
concept, right? It's, it's, it's a weird thing to, to look forward to. I don't think it's easy to fathom exactly what that's going to be like. But we are told that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then all of us who are living, if we're still living, then we will also meet the Lord. You say, well, I don't know if that can happen. That sounds like sci-fi kind of stuff. It does. Okay, that's okay to say. It does sound like sci-fi kind of stuff. Here's the difference. 500 witnesses says the first guy in line has already been through and has already come back and said, hey, it worked. That's Jesus' resurrection, isn't it? Jesus' resurrection is, if you took Spanish... In old school, formal Spanish, you know, you, you had the upside down exclamation point at the beginning of the sentence to tell you when you're reading the mood that that sentence is going to be in. The resurrection of Jesus is the upside down exclamation point telling us to get excited because the real exclamation point of our own resurrection is coming. And as sure as the one at the beginning of the sentence is there, the one at the end of the sentence is there. Will happen. Already happened. Proof of concept. He's already shown us. Listen, I am coming again. You will be raised. And I've shown you exactly how it's going to be done. He is our hope. He is our resurrection. And he is our exclamation point. And that's why Paul was able to say at the end of the chapter here in verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. This ties right back into what Jesus was saying in the book of Luke. Because this is your foundation, your hope in Jesus Christ, what happened on the cross, and the resurrection of the dead. You can stand firm no matter what streams, storms, earthquakes, tornadoes, High winds come against your house because, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. That's not just hearing the word, but also doing the word. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. You know the fruit that grows from that root, the cross the burial and the resurrection of the dead and the hope that it brings, that fruit will always be good fruit. Anything that comes from that foundation, any tree planted in that soil, stands strong and bears good fruit. And that's true of your heart and your life. God has made that promise according to the Scriptures. That if you will stand firm and give yourselves fully to the Lord, your labor is never in vain.